an exclusive report tonight with footage from the October 7th terror attack on Israeli civilians. Welcome to The Lead, the new Lies Magazine podcast. I'm Lydia Wilson, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. It is almost four months since Hamas attacked Israel on October the 7th, killing over 1,200 people. Hundreds more were kidnapped and taken back into Gaza by Hamas to be held as hostages. The ensuing response from Israel has been devastating, and Gaza's health ministry has reported over 26,000 deaths at the time of recording. Bringing the two sides together has proved a hugely difficult, though not impossible, task. A week-long ceasefire at the end of November saw some of the hostages return to Israel in return for a temporary pause in the fighting. The ceasefire was brokered by the small Gulf state of Qatar. Recent news is that Hamas is considering a proposal, hammered out in Paris with Egypt, Qatar and America as joint mediating partners, for further prisoner releases in exchange for a break in the fighting. Should that kind of a swap be entertained with terrorists? You know our policy on that, uh, Michael. We don't, uh, we don't either negotiate or uh, make exchanges or pay ransoms. We don't negotiate with terrorists. This has been part of an international mantra since 9-11 and the start of the war on terror. Yet here we are, over 22 years later, the Taliban in power in Afghanistan, with talks also taking place in Qatar, and with Hamas, designated a terrorist organisation by the United States, around a negotiating table in Paris. With me today to discuss mediation and conflict is Pierre Hazan, who has described Qatar's mediation in the conflict as a crystal clear example of the end of Western hegemony over the international system. He has just published a book, Negotiating with the Devil, Inside the World of Armed Conflict Mediation, which describes how conflict resolution has shifted over the decades since the Cold War ended. It draws on his own long experience in mediation as a senior advisor with the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and decades of advising NGOs, governments and armed groups on issues of justice, amnesty, reparation, truth commissions, international humanitarian law and human rights. Pierre Hazan, Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Very glad to be with you. You haven't always been in this world of mediation. In fact, you started as a journalist, didn't you? So can you explain what led from war reporting to attempting war prevention? I was uh, always interested by conflicts and trying to understand the dynamics of societies, why they get divided, and why sometimes we are able to find ways to, to reconstruct and to reconcile. So I started as a journalist, as you mentioned, and uh, one of the first conflicts I've covered was former Yugoslavia. And during that conflict, there was a specific event which basically um, Shakes me. Uh, the story is the following. Um, there was a terrible camp, uh, awful place, uh, where people were losing uh, 10 or 30, well, 20 or 30 kilos. Uh, some were killed. Uh, so the situation was extremely grim. And, uh, and uh, there was some negotiation and some mediation. I was not part of it. Uh, 
but at one point, I was embedded. Uh, I was embedded with uh, a team of uh, a, human, a humanitarian team, uh, and we received an instruction, uh, which was the result of a mediation. And the instruction was a third of the two thousand inmates could be freed, and you have to select them. And for us, it was quite a shock. How are you going to select people who will be free and some who will remain in this awful place and may die as a result? It was a kind of life and death decision. And uh, so it was for us, I think, extremely difficult to to be part of this uh, process. And somehow we have, all of us were thinking of Sophie's choices and feel, felt very, very badly about it. But it's what I, we did. And then that triggered me to think about difficult choices. What is an acceptable choice? What is the lesser evil? Uh, because if you want to mitigate suffering, if you want to put an end to conflict, then you need to compromise. But who is paying the price of a compromise? Well, that sounds like a horrifying decision that I don't think anybody would like to to be part of. Basically, you're acting in judgment. You're saying who should live and who should die. And I think that's something that politicians also have to face um, when going into a, a, a situation of conflict. And it's something that you obviously have to wrestle with as a conflict negotiator at all times. Now, conflict negotiation is often secret, right, for very, very necessary reasons. The people around the table um, have to keep, have to perhaps think of public opinion. They don't want people to know they're in, they're in, they're in a mediation situation, or perhaps they don't want their details, plans, their capabilities more widely known. But this secrecy makes what you do even more fascinating. Can you actually describe what really happens during these drawn-out, difficult negotiations? I believe that every conflict is very specific. Obviously, what's happening between a conflict between two communities uh, in the Sahel region has nothing to do that between, let's say, Ukraine and Russia. The dynamics are different, the culture are different, the balance of power is different, so there is not much in common between different situations. This being said, uh, very often you start by a kind of what we call sometimes track two. You try to approach different people who are ready to talk to the other side. And uh, you and after, and so it's a period of uh, of testing uh, the different red lines to better understand the dynamics of each side don't forget that each side has also victims people who have been also uh, people who are still missing so there are a lot of internal possibly contradictions in each side so you need somehow to better understand who you are in front of you what is what is his uh, position uh, to which extent to, to which extent uh, this person is strong enough to carry a peace process and uh, so on the one hand you need obviously confidentiality especially in the first steps 
but then there could be a tension between um, confidentiality in order to be effective and in the same time to let the society know that something is happening. Otherwise, sometimes, and it happened, and I can think of some examples, we have been uh, an announcement of uh, a peace deal, but the population didn't know uh, anything about it and was shocked and was not prepared for it. And as a result, there was a lot of spoilers. So somehow you need at one point to be extremely confidential and on the other hand, to be more open and more inclusive to prevent too many spoilers. This is all quite on the big scale, the political scale. And I wondered what it's like on the personal scale. Are you um, getting in um, cars with tinted windows and going to anonymous hotels and being in rooms where um, people are people are arriving that you don't necessarily know who they are? You know, what is it? What does it feel like to negotiate between people who maybe don't even want to be there? Well, I uh, well, I guess a lot of things are happening. Uh, not well, depends on the situation again. But very often, it it's not happening in the in the country where or in the countries where the conflict is happening. Um, very often, it takes place somewhere else. Very often in. Uh, hotels or in uh, quiet places, uh, um, um, a remote villa uh, in which there is uh, some some time for uh, being being able to elaborate uh, and to enter in a real conversation. So there is this uh, dimension. And, uh, And before reaching that stage, I think there is an important stage to work with each side and to prepare them because uh, very often there is n- it's not uh, sometimes could be dangerous to go too fast uh, and to want having both sides together they need to be ready to do that they need to have elaborated their red lines they need to have elaborated their strategy so you spent a lot of time working separately with each uh, with each group, and when you say two camps or two belligerents, in some situations there could be many. I can give you an example. I worked in, for instance, in Central African Republic. There was the government on the one side, and fourteen armed groups on the other side. Official armed groups. So the peace process has to be inclusive and to take into account the 14 armed groups. And uh, my organization had to be in touch with each of these 14 armed groups and create some kind of uh, relationship. So what was it? 14 bilateral relationships until you can get people around a table. I mean, I don't even understand 14 round at one table because the conversations must be quite difficult to manage. How do you manage that many parties to a conflict? Well, because uh, it it took years and the result is uh, there has been uh, a successful uh, peace treaty which has been more or less enforced uh, even if the situation is far from being perfect. But uh, first, you 
try to deal with, well, you need to deal with 14 armed groups plus the government. Then you start to elaborate with, between different groups, uh, a current platform. And from uh, one platform, you are trying to move to a more inclusive platform when you feel the time is right to have a real conversation with the main stakeholders. Have you ever been scared I was scared a few times, but I would say uh, I was more scared when I was a journalist than when I worked in mediation. And I would think that the people who are taking the more risks in mediation is um, in is the local mediators. They could be perceived by their own community as spies or traitors. And uh, so that sit- the situation for them is much more difficult than for, than for an international mediator. Well, in your book, you describe the 1990s as this period of optimism, really, and a period of greater confidence in our international institutions of, of, of peace mediation and justice, but you describe two very laudable aims that you you think are actually in tension. First of all, there's the pursuit of peace seen in mediation and interventions. But on the other hand, there's the pursuit of justice seen in the rise and strengthening of all our international institutions of law. Can you flesh this out to explain the tension you see in peace versus justice? Yeah. What is really amazing in the 90s that there is a new concept which is appearing is to have international justice in a time of war. It's something which never happened before and that created a totally new situation. Let me give you a very vivid example for me. Um, at the time, I was still a journalist and I was covering the war in Bosnia-Herzegovina including the peace process happening in Geneva in the UN building. And on the eighth floor, there was a reception on the peace with main actors of the war. There was Milosevic, Mladic, uh, Kajic, uh, Izabegovic, Tuchman, all the, basically, the, the presidents and military leaders of former Yugoslavia who were at war. And on the basement, there were some people uh, trying to think how to induct war criminals. And uh, you could see that was some kind of schizophrenic um, moment in uh, the UN life. And I remember seeing a Western ambassador coming to me and saying, you know, it's so bizarre. I just had a whiskey with Milosevic. And there are some people here who want to indict him. So explain me, how does it work? I mean, do, want, do we want to make peace or get uh, or to have this man behind bars? So we see that this tension happened. I mean, that was the beginning of the tension between peace and justice. But I want to push back on that just a little bit, because um, for, for a couple of very different reasons. One is in very, very unequal situations when, um, for example, you draw a, um, in your book, you draw on the example of Syria quite extensively. And that's a situation where for the vast majority of the conflict, uh, the balance of force has been overwhelmingly on the side of the regime and its allies. And then, of course, we have 
the current situation um, in in Gaza, where the, it's it's the same it's the same situation in terms of the balance of of military might. And I wonder if these actions of pursuing justice, of pursuing war crimes, of of breaches of international law, of breaches against human rights, actually act as a little bit of a balance um, to the side of of the, 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 the you know to, to balance out the military force, which is which is in many places very very one sided. I wonder if that can be a tool eventually for mediation because there's a there's a stick there as well as the carrot, basically. I think you are totally right. Uh, it could be a, a useful uh, tool for mediators. And in the same time, uh, it could be also an obstacle. An obstacle. Uh, very often, in actually in every mediation process I've been involved a lot of time, has been to discuss the question of prosecution and amnesty. Obviously, the people who are in front of you, many of them, they fear international criminal justice. Uh, So uh, on the one hand, you want them uh, at the table of negotiation. And on the other hand, uh, they they are concerned about what's going to happen to them if the peace process is going forward and they want some guarantee. So there are a lot of discussions about uh, international justice, question of amnesty, immunity, that takes, it's always a very sensitive issue. And every situation is different because it depends on the balance of power. If you want to reach some kind of agreement with uh, a very strong power, even if this power has committed uh, atrocious crimes, then you will need, you, you will find at a certain stage uh, some compromise on justice. And sometimes uh, the imperative is to get the blood stopping, I mean, the war stopping and people stopping getting killed. And then justice will come only later. But you will try in the same time to introduce some elements of justice, even uh, during the peace process. I mean, uh, human rights documentations and other things could be important because also it gives hope to, to the victims, to the society at large. They can imagine a process of reconstruction. So... Um, we need also, and we can see that in many, many places, that justice is not only criminal justice. It has to be larger than that. It could include many things, many elements. could include restorative justice. We have seen Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It could include illustration or vetting. So it could be a lot of things. And then, obviously, there is the question of reparations, which is very important for people who have lost so much. And reparation is not actually a proper term because you cannot repair when you have lost someone. But still, there is some kind of compensation. And this gives some hope. And basically, you want also not to give a blank check to people who committed crimes because you are very worried that uh, they could restart again. So the question of impunity needs to be dealt with. 
Um, so there is a thin balance between different imperatives. Yes, I do see that. And we'll come to questions of short term versus long term in a minute. But in terms of that question, then, what do you think about South Africa's actions bringing a, a genocide case against Israel in the international courts of justice? I think it's really interesting um, when you think that only, I think, two years ago, um, uh, South Africa authorities were contemplating the fact to withdraw from the International Criminal Court. And as you know, they pressed charges, not only uh, at the International Court of Justice, but also uh, against Israel uh, with the ICC. So, and you know also, you may remember that a few years ago, there was Omar al-Bashir, who, who was indicted by the ICC uh, for crime of genocide and was on South African territory and was not arrested. So I think on the one hand, uh, no one is perfect in our very imperfect world. But I think it's very important that there is a justice process and people can feel recognized, acknowledged, and see so there is something very important which is being played on not only on the on on, on the justice but also on a larger scale what it says about rule of law and international rule of law even if some of these legal instruments are very weak you were speaking about the International Court of Justice, but there was a previous ruling between Russia and Ukraine, and the court asked Russia to withdraw from Ukraine, and obviously Russia didn't do didn't do so. So I think on a moral level and a legal level, it's very important, but sometimes these instruments are very weak. Yes, there's very little enforcement capability. Our, our institutions really have no teeth. But then you did mention the fact that a, a, a lot of world leaders are, are worried about being pursued for war crimes, and that actually is part of negotiations. So how do you explain that? If we can't enforce them, why is anybody scared? They're still scared. I mean, let me give you uh, an example. I was myself involved uh, it was in 2001, and uh, still a journalist at the time, and I was with uh, someone called Reed Brody, who was working for, uh, with Human Rights Watch, and he got some very interesting uh, um, evidence or um, testimonies, rather testimonies, of people who have been uh, tortured uh, in Chad under... Uh, the former dictator, Isena Bre, who was living quietly in Dakar, Senegal at the time. And so I went with uh, uh, this friend to Chad. And uh, it's a long story, but basically we were able to find uh, the, um, uh, the, we went to the headquarter of the former, former political police and found all the archives. Basically, it was the archives of terror of Chad. And that was basically uh, the evidence to indict uh, Isenabre, the dictator. And uh, 
It took a lot of time. It took 15 years. Um, a special tribunal has to be created to put him on trial. Uh, so there was the um, the creation of uh, the African Extraordinary Chambers to uh, to to put on trial Isen Abre for uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and even for rapes he committed himself. And uh, well, I think that example says that uh, sometimes justice is being done, and uh, so some. Uh, war leaders could be rightly worried about what could happen to them. Well, then let's go to uh, the, the back to the specific example of Israel. Now, the ICJ has ruled 15 out of 17 of its judges said that it was plausible Israel was committing genocide and they ordered Israel um, to prevent genocidal action. Well, so, I, sorry, I disagree of- with you. It's not totally correct. Uh, the court didn't say that Israel has committed genocide. It said that it has jurisdiction to see if Israel has committed jurisdiction, to see if Israel has committed genocide. Right, right. And I mean, plausibility was was in the ruling. But what I want to ask about is mediation in in terms of mediation specifically. Is this likely to have so so headlines around the world were incredibly divided on this issue. There seemed to be no consensus of what this actually meant for either the Palestinian population or the conflict long term. People said, oh, this is a wake up call to Washington. People said, oh, this is a legal victory, but but um, is going to result in in more lives lost um so there was there was a lot of uh, a lack of clarity about this what what this what this ruling actually implied for the future so you as a mediator how do you see it do you see it as more pressure on israel do you see it, do you see it as a potential tool in future mediation t- um efforts what what do you think the result of this this action is I think it was not a ruling, it was provisional measures. And uh, I think it it sent a very strong signal to uh, the Israeli army uh, to be much more uh, careful uh, in uh, trying to target uh, Hamas fighters and leadership in Gaza. I have, uh, I mean, the number of uh, uh, victims, uh, civilian victims, are obviously shocking, and uh, and uh, so I think it's it sent a very strong signal. Uh, to which to which extent will it be implemented? This has to be seen. Uh, but it's true that Israel and uh, Gaza is uh, is such a polarizing uh, uh, conflict. And uh, so a lot of people have have very different perspective. Uh, some would like the court to have been much more, uh, to, to have been much stronger uh, condemning Israel and asking for a ceasefire. That's uh, something the court didn't do. And some others considered that uh, uh, the ruling, of, um, of the provisional measures were uh, too, too, too strong against Israel. But still, I believe it will have an effect. Um, and it is taking place as a very specific moment. We have at least three different tracks of mediation happening currently. One is basically um, 
trying to negotiate a ceasefire, um, maybe not permanent ceasefire, but a ceasefire against the liberation of a number of hostages. Then there is another track, which is more about to do about the reconstruction of of Gaza. And I believe here um, there is a lot of discussions between the Saudis and the Americans. Um, Saudi Arabia could possibly recognize the state of Israel if there is some kind also of political solution or at least some political roadmap to end the conflict. So there are a lot of different discussions happening now. And this is happening also on the backdrop of uh, the provisional measures of International Court of Justice. So I believe it has some impact. Um, Well, this you've mentioned a few times now that the aims of conflict mediation are often extremely immediate. It's to stop the bloodshed. And the problem there, as many examples of of long running conflicts show us, is that short term gains gains sorry can actually um, fit into the belligerence overall strategy, and actually we're just fueling the conflict in the long run by letting people maybe regroup during a, a, a ceasefire. Uh, and the big example is, of course, Syria. Now, your organisation, the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue, um, actually was a major player in brokering uh, certain short-term deals in Syria, uh, along with the UN. And primary amongst that was organising um, um, the evacuation of civilians from areas who had been starved and bombarded until submission. And there was no question of them fighting back. There was no question of them winning militarily, of course. Um, and what 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 the deals did was allow them to be bused to other places, often to be bombed there. I think people from Homs were taken to Aleppo. Um, Aleppo was the next to be bombed. People from Aleppo were bused to Idlib, which is still under bombardment until this day. An accusation that can be made, an argument that can be made, is that mediation has extended the long-term suffering in response for short-term gains. How do you live with that ethical dilemma? It's exactly what I tried to discuss in the book. And, um, well, I think my conclusion, basically, is uh, the right of life overrides every other right. uh, Every other right. So what you try to do is to save life in it's because it's the most you can do at a specific moment. You but you're want risking a real solution, lives. but sorry, you're risking lives in the future, potentially more lives. I wouldn't say that. Um, the the problem. I mean, let me let me explain a previous example, which I think help to understand also where we are today in the thinking. This has to do with Srebrenica. Um, Before July 95, uh, there was a a demand of uh, the the leadership of uh, this besieged uh, 
uh, enclave, Muslim enclave, uh, to basically move the whole population, and you are talking about 40,000 people, uh, to, to move them to a different area, which will be under the uh, protection of, uh, under, the, under the control of the government of Sarajevo. And in the beginning, the UN accepted and decided to send some buses. And these buses arrived in Sarajevo, and they got the permission by the Bosnian Serbs to cross the territory to go back to to go to Sarajevo's territory. But uh, at one point, the UN reflected more and decided that would be actually playing in the hands of uh, a policy of ethnic cleansing and decided that was unacceptable. And for that reason, the buses had to return empty. And we know today what happened in July 1995, between 8 and 10,000 men were summarily uh, executed by the Bosnian Serb forces. So when today you are confronted with excruciating dilemmas, you are trying to identify the lesser evil. It's not a perfect solution. It's not even a good solution, but it's possibly a lesser evil. I, 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 yes, you've made that argument very powerful and I can see how Srebrenica <clears throat> sorry, was entirely, how, how it shaped long-term attitudes to mediation across the world um, because it was so shocking. There was an opportunity to stop it and that, that opportunity was not taken with really so tragic results. Um, but I think there's more to be picked up in terms of long-term aims. And that is the type of peace that we're aiming for. I I fully understand that saving lives is your guiding principle, but I wonder if we could just think about different types of peace that we're setting up. Now, you write actually of frozen conflicts, and we actually had a podcast with Joey Ayoub, a Lebanese researcher and writer. He spoke of growing up in Lebanon, um, being told that Lebanon was at peace, um, and he said that was like being gaslit, because in reality... Um, the only thing that changed with the peace agreement, the Taif Agreement of 1989, which stopped their civil war, the only thing that really changed was the cessation of violence. And that's not nothing, of course, but the potential for violence, the structures of the politics of the country was left in place, which has led to crisis after crisis um, since the end of their civil war. Um, and actually, the reason I pick up on that example is Joey himself called it a frozen conflict. So do mediators ever think about this type of peace when mediating? Yes. Basically, uh, you have two types of peace. You have negative peace and positive peace. Negative peace is the cessation of hostilities, but you are not often dealing with root causes. So you you are trying just to to stop uh, the war happening and we can think not only not only about lebanon but other examples obviously dayton i mean the, the peace agreement in, uh, in which put an end to the conflict in former yugoslavia is a very imperfect uh, solution uh, and a lot of people would argue that uh, 
it didn't really uh, help to create some kind of process of reconciliation and the and the roots for future tension or even war is still conceivable. So yes, that's a dimension which has to be taken into account. The question is to which extent are you able to reach something more ambitious? And if sometimes you are, that's great. And sometimes it's not possible. And that's very unfortunate. It is just a first step. The problem with this uh, um, frozen war is that you're not able sometimes to build or you or the international community is too tired or is, has lost perspective of this conflict and it's looking somewhere else in more pressing issues. And, uh, and that's very unfortunate. The fact that a lot of people thought that uh, uh, the peace in the Dayton Agreement will be enough. It's not enough. Uh, and we know if, uh, I guess, the, uh, Putin would have succeeded in the first few weeks in Ukraine, very likely we would have possibly another war in the Balkans. So we see how fragile the situation is. The question is, is it possible to do better? And is there enough political will from internal actors and also from inter-external actors. So what are the main barriers to peace building? I guess, uh, well, you have different layers. You have layers. I mean, every conflict is different. So in some countries, it's a question of land territories. In other in other uh, situation, it's more about power sharing in or about identities. So you need to identify what in each situation are really the root causes and try to address them. And let me take, you are mentioning uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And if we think about Oslo, it's a very interesting uh, Example, because with Oslo 1 and Oslo 2, the decision was taken to deal with the difficult matters later. It was postponed uh, the discussion of on Jerusalem, on the right of return, on uh, the settlers living uh, on the occupied territories. And by postponing critical issues, you are just somehow... Um, playing in the hands of uh, the spoilers uh, who are part of a population which think that the real issues are not being discussed. So uh, you see how sometimes it's difficult to find uh, the right uh, to discuss the most difficult issues in the beginning. You want to postpone them later, but also it could be very dangerous and counterproductive. You're kicking the can down the road, yes, and building resentment potentially in the process. And so you've tracked great changes over the decades you've been observing this field. You've seen uh, the war on terror completely change the landscape of what's possible in mediation because anything labelled terrorist is, is, is automatically excluded from negotiations, making settlement absolutely impossible. We've actually had Jonathan Powell 
on the podcast. Um, you mentioned him. Yes, you're smart. Yes, you mentioned him in your book. Um, he he thought it was it was utterly ludicrous to exclude fundamental actors from conflict negotiations and he points to his his own experience in Northern Ireland. There could never have been a peace process ever without the IRA being round the table. Um, and it seems very obvious to say that in retrospect and yet the lesson wasn't learnt around the world. Partly because of the, the, the legal ramifications of the war on terror which also um, um, affected hugely this the scope for humanitarian action um, because um, because the onus was on the humanitarian organisations to 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 prove they weren't funding terrorists, which could have been a slice of bread. <laughs> um, and so, um, and then, of course, what we've seen more recently, um, for a number of reasons, is the fragmenting, the diminishment of Western hegemony, in particular American hegemony, partly the loss of legitimacy through failed interventions such as Iraq and Afghanistan, partly because of economic changes across the world, the rise of East Asia, a, a whole multiplicity. So I know this is extremely complicated, but can you see where we're going in terms of mediation? Well, as you mentioned, there used to be one or two big guys in the block, and now there are a lot of, lot of them. There are a lot of uh, regional powers who are trying to pursue their own interests and, and are strong enough to do so. So that's creating more insecurity, and we see the defense spending rising and rising. So it means that uh, a lot of uh, peace processes like in Colombia will unfortunately become will become less and less common as more of a, even local conflicts tend to be internationalized. If you think about Sudan, it's not about only about local actors. It's about in so many actors, regional and international actors. If you think about Libya, I don't know how many actors are they. You can speak about Turkey, Russia, the US, uh, uh, Egypt, the UAE, and so on and on and on. And that's, create, that's creating a much more difficult peace process. And then there are a number of developments which are interesting and sometimes also very challenging. Um, one of them is technology. Uh, you know that every war is also a cyber war. So how do you deal with uh, diplomatic, what is an electronic ceasefire? I mean, it's, uh, it's a new field. So there is a lot of work to be done. And there's currently some experiences, some experiments being done in different places, in central Nigeria, for instance, or in Bosnia-Herzegovina, trying to establish code of conduct. There has been also uh, the question of artificial intelligence uh, is also quite a challenge. Um, so there have been also some discussions, preliminary discussions between Chinese and American experts through different mediation uh, to try to see how artificial intelligence and military system could be regulated. I guess also the question of cartels is a new dimension. I mean, some 
criminal cartels are very very powerful sometimes as powerful of uh, of uh, from as powerful as some states so should mediation engage with these cartels, if that's a very different call, and we have seen some governments trying to uh, to make some some agreements with uh, with different results, actually, with some cartels, especially in Latin America. Um, obviously, the question of um, climate change will also be quite a challenge, and there are a lot of conflicts. I mean, we can speak basically of dozens of conflicts in the Sahel region where the uh, question of climate change and scarce resources is basically the root cause of many conflicts. So there are a lot of uh, issues which needs to be discussed. Uh, and basically, at the end of the day, when you have a conflict, it could end only by two ways, either, either militarily or through negotiation and mediation. And obviously, the latter is better. You've described so many really very complex ethical dilemmas when being a mediator. You, and as you said earlier, you're, you're, you're choosing the lesser of evils. You're not often choosing good. You're just finding the least bad solution to the problem. So with these endless difficult decisions to be made, do you ever get worn out? What is also, I think always fascinating and so I mean for me it's so creation of hope is to see local people engage for peace and when you see them they put their lives online I mean uh, they really risk their lives and you know and when you see that you can just have respect for them and you are trying to help them because at the end of the day, these people will be able to reconstruct, reconstruct their own society. And it's a fun, it's totally admirable. Oh, so you still have hope. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Pierre Hazan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Lydia. Pierre's book, Negotiating with the Devil, Inside the World of Armed Conflict Mediation, is published by Hearst and available in all good bookshops. This week's episode was produced by Finbar Anderson and hosted by me, Lydia Wilson. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.